There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love is the message. Hello, welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, dance, counterculture and much more. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hello, hello. And today we're going to be talking about acid. So where do we begin with this uh, expansive this expansive topic where, which can head in so many directions? Well, before I get into a kind of narrative history about acid, in, mainly acid in American culture in the 60s and 70s, why don't you say briefly, like, well, why... Why are we so interested in it? Uh, we're interested in looking at this uh, intersection between music, dance and counterculture. And Acid came to play this kind of uh, pivotal role uh, in the late 1960s onwards. Uh, it was clearly also central to David Mancuso's conception of the loft. We know that the, the party that we now think of as the first loft party uh, had had the words Love Saves the Day written on the invitation and they were a reference um, to ACID. Uh, it was an ACID-driven party. Um, and I think it's also just from, you know, there's a kind of, you know, a wider, broader history in which I don't know how anyone, if anyone can put a number on it, but um, I'd count myself uh, as among the people who've experienced the drug, um, have found aspects of it revelatory and understand that it can just kind of provide this, you know, very powerful way into connecting with music, people around you and understanding, you know, uh, without wanting to sound too cheesy, our, I guess our place in the in the universe and the importance of love. What about you? Uh, well, sure. I mean, I'd say I don't want to be accused of being like a proselytizer, you know. So I would say, I mean, both of us have had plenty of experience with psychedelics historically, which is pretty normal for people who came through the rave scene of the early nineties. Actually, in the UK, at least, if you look at statistics about what drugs people have used over the course of their whole lives. I think the last time I checked, you're more likely have taken it to have taken LSD at least once if you were at university in the first half of the 90s than any other time, <laughs> which will surprise people. But that's because, you know, there was still a lot of it being made at that time, and a lot of it around it was cheap. And like in the early days of rave culture, like ecstasy, MDMA was actually expensive and hard to get and often very unreliable in terms of quality. So everybody was taking sort of quite weak doses of LSD. And you know there was a lot, there was also a big wave of interest. There was the first wave of interest because of people starting to grow mushrooms, like mainly in the states, and people like Terence McKenna being around. So mm. I, I always feel like it's important to issue a warning because because in my experience, like for for a certain kind of person, especially a, you know a, a constitutively fairly uptight and cerebral person like you and me, and like a lot of the people we're going to be talking about in this story, actually, mm. it tends to be very beneficial. I would say of the people I knew, kind of experimented with it, it was roughly 50-50, the people for whom it was like a great thing and the people for whom it didn't really work and it wasn't that helpful. I never knew, I didn't know anyone get permanently damaged, but I always feel like I, I want to avoid like just being a sort of simple proselytizer. For sure. 
And the other thing is, if anyone, you know, if anyone wants to kind of explore these things, there's a whole series of kind of procedures, rituals that are kind of recommended, you know, above all having, you know, having someone with you who's done this before, who doesn't do the, do the, you know, do the same thing. So. Well, yeah, I'd refer people to the Psychedelic Society website if they're in the UK or I'm sure it's got links to sites elsewhere if people are interested in that sort of thing. So I guess one of the questions is, you know, the, the LS, you know, it's often the case, isn't it, that, you know, we have something gets to be invented, the technology comes into existence. Uh, and sometimes we might assume that it all, you know, it kind of immediately has the effects that its capacity suggests. We, so we might think of, you know, the discovery of LSD and, the, you know, immediately kind of LSD culture comes into being and the kind of the the possible value of this experience is also kind of immediately understood. But um, I suppose one of the things that we need to think about here is the way that there must there was some sort of gap, wasn't it, between the, the development of, of acid and then the way that it kind of started to circulate in culture and then the way that it became something which seemed to be countercultural. So why don't you tell us about how LSD came about in the first place? Okay, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good point. And it's a good point that I think from our perspective, LSD is best understood as a technology. And like other technologies, it doesn't have like one set of meanings or effects socially or psychically or culturally as, as you've just said its effects are dependent on context and usage and can go in many different directions mm. on the other hand there is a, there's there's a consistent feature of the effects of psychedelics including lsd psilocybin that's the active ingredient in mushrooms mescaline mm. that's the active ingredient in peyote and the consistent feature is that not not all of the time by any means, but with consistent regularity under appropriate conditions. If you give it, at least if you give it to people who've grown up in sort of European or American or sort of Antipodean sort of culture, then they're quite likely to have some kind of experience which seems to resemble some version of a classically defined or spiritual or mystical experience. And the first example of that that is the chemist who, who discovered it in the in the late 40s, Albert Hoffman, who's a Swiss chemist, who ingested LSD sort of by accident for the first time at some time in the 1940s and had this famous experience where you know, he'd taken 250 micrograms of acid and had a huge trip and it was the first one anyone had ever had. And, and in some ways it was very scary and, and uh, difficult. But like the good aspects of it, he really enjoyed, and it, and they seemed, and he interpreted them in the light of what kind of philosophical, theoretical, conceptual resources he had from his education of a sort of early twentieth century German language education. So he thought about it in terms which were derived from sort of romantic ideas of sort of spirituality to some extent. And then it becomes over the course of the fifties, LSD circulates through various networks, and and what's it's being used for is it's being used as some kind of a therapeutic chemical by various uh, psychological psychiatric researchers so it's being used in for in certain kinds of psychotherapy is it treated for alcoholism is, yeah, is that one, I was of the, say, yeah. one of the key yeah, the big part of the story as most people listening will know is that this research all gets shut down for 50 years and there's only just started up again recently much of it but the thing that they seems to have been a really high success rate in um, getting people off alcoholism. You know, it does seem to be a really high success rate in treating alcoholism. And then it also comes to be used 
in kind of just sort of talking talking therapies for people with issues like anxiety of what we would now consider anxiety of various kinds like towards the end of the 50s but it's circulating through these different networks and also by the end of the 50s it's sort of being used a lot by um so psychotherapists in, in Hollywood, in California, and it's there's an idea that it can increase the creativity of artists and actors and, and people and people like this, that it has some sort of expansive capacity. Of course, there's also a heavy programme of research into its use by the CIA. And um, the CIA in the 50s are hoping that it can be used as some kind of a truth drug, that you can basically give it to it, force people onto an acid trip and they'll reveal their secrets. And that's a total failure. There is a whole, there is a sort of leftist conspiracy theory that the CIA draw the conclusion that well we can't use it for a truth drug, but it'll certainly, it'll certainly shut, you know, it'll certainly dis- distract a whole generation of intellectuals and potential revolutionaries if we put it out into the culture, and that there's a there's a conspiracy which I think has no, I mean the evidence, we're not going to get into the evidence that's given for that, but it's weak and it doesn't really. You know, it's a poor interpretation of the evidence, in my view. But certainly the fact that the CIA are playing around with it, trying to figure out what to do with it in the 50s, is one of the reasons it gets more widely disseminated as well. Right, right. Well, as I say, well, the other thing that's happening at the, sort of at the same time, though, in the, all, all in the 40s and 50s, is there's a few things happening at the same time. So there's um, a guy called Gordon Wasson, who's an American sort of businessman, sort of adventurer, um, who's fascinated with the cultural history of mushrooms, uh, starts pu- you know, publishes articles in places like Life magazine about what he's discovered about the use of psychedelic mushrooms by, you know, in sort of religious rituals in places like Mexico. And then there's also a kind of history, which people really tend to forget about now, but you know, again, Jesse Jono's book Head is really good on this, of people taking mescaline, Taking people either taking peyote buttons from peyote cactuses or, or synthetic mescaline, and that that history of people taking mescaline doesn't that goes right back to the early twentieth century. So people like William James, you know, the American philosopher, are taking mescaline, and and it doesn't really stop actually. People, you know, everybody sort of it's sort of forgotten now, but everybody knew about mescaline. Everybody knew there was this stuff that would give you some sort of spiritual experience, and it was it was synthesized from the chemical that the indigenous people from again, from parts of Mexico, would use. And you could get it, and you could buy it over the counter. You know, there were, there were shops where you could buy peyote buttons over the counter in New York in the 50s. And uh, Aldous Huxley, when he writes his famous book, The Doors of Perception, he's really talking about his experiences with mescaline. So all these things are going on at the same time. And then by the end of the 50s, and by the early 60s, it's actually the psilocybin that people like Timothy Leary, who at the time is just a, a, an ambitious and, and respected experimental psychologist at Harvard, people like him and his colleagues start experimenting with, you know, as I say, at Harvard University in the early 60s. And they're very sort of taken with this sense that the thing that psychedelics can do is to give you a sort of spiritual experience and by giving you a spiritual experience, give you some sort of insight into yourself or into your sort of general psychosocial condition. And and they start to think of it as this real sort of cure-all for various you know, social and, and potential sort of social, cultural, psychological problems. They seem to sort of understand it in quite political terms, I guess, don't they? That's one of the things that emerges around this time. I mean, I don't know, maybe it had been understood that way previously, but this idea that 
you can it's sort of a way into kind of a it's a critique of western civilization almost or certainly western capitalism you you divest you, the, these ideas seem to come more to the foreground although there's a twist isn't there but the idea is that you know lsd will help you kind of you know contextualize and even escape moments period you know for a period from your ego the these kind of ideas or kind of this sort of anti-individualism starts come to the, come through the idea of a a universe that's multi-dimensional so that you know we were always being told that you know what we can see around us is what there is and all of a sudden there you know there's this challenge to the basic you know, understanding of the world around us. You know, the the Vietnam War has already been running for a period, so um, you know that's and this is kind of the the linking between war and the state, and you know, in the United States has become kind of you know quite profound in the post-war era uh, with Viet, the Vietnam War going back as far as 1955, and then all of a sudden there's this idea that you know universal love is the thing that we need to kind of embrace. So. I don't know if, if anyone before Leary was kind of thinking about this in such a politicised way. I mean, the, the, the flip, of course, is that he was, for someone who's maybe appreciative of the way that acid could help people control their ego, Leary seemed to be kind of very much driven by ego in some respects. Maybe that's unfair, I don't know, but that's, that's what it, that's what it looks, looked like from the, it looks like from the outside. Tune in, turn on, get down. I think it's worth kind of specifying that what I mean, what's going on with these experiments at Harvard in the early '60s, including the, the really famous one where they give a load of trainee sort of theology and divinity students and, and ministers. They give a load of them psilocybin, and, and they give a, a control group no psilocybin, and they have them spend the night in churches and, and see which ones have religious experiences, and the ones on shrooms all have religious experiences, and, and the other ones mostly don't. But that's all going on with psilocybin, which is worth differentiating. You know, the effects of psilocybin for mushrooms in moderate doses, they tend not to be quite as intense in LSD and they tend to last a shorter time. And there's also, I mean, arguably, sort of subjectively, there's a slightly sort of, until you get into really high doses where it all gets weird, tends to be a slightly sort of fluffier vibe with mushrooms and psilocybin, tends to be a bit less, tends to be a bit less of a, of a complete loss of sense of self, for example. And then, they're, so they're, they're, get, they're kind of getting into mushrooms and they're into mushrooms and they're into this idea they've discovered this ancient wisdom and, and mushrooms is going to solve all these problems that clinical psychology ha- hasn't really been able to solve so far. And, and it's really not political at all at that point. You know, it's sort of spiritual, but it's really, you know, it's part, it's easily understandable as part of a general cultural interest in both sort of, you know, progressive social liberalisation and and various kinds of therapy. Then what happens is they they sort of discover LSD, which other groups of researchers like, and other psychologists, like the people treating alcoholism, in, especially in Canada, have already been using for a few years. But these guys get hold of LSD. And LSD, to them, is a sort of seems to be a sort of different kettle of fish. It seems to be a, a whole new order of intensity. And that's when they really start to sort of get wild. And they're looking around for conceptual frameworks to make sense of what's going on in the LSD experience and why is it does it seem to be so profound and powerful and the things that are kind of are available to them that they they get hold of are really things coming from certain strands of buddhism i mean not so much the zen buddhism which had been fashionable on the beatnik scene in the in the late 50s and, and more sort of strands of tibetan buddhism but that's pretty arbitrary it's pretty much just by accident that that's what they get hold of 
And yeah, this idea that what you have to do is sort of go through a ritual of dissolving your ego and then sort of putting it back together again in, in order to liberate yourself from social conventions. There's always a real sort of tension in that idea that they don't really themselves try to resolve until you know a bit later well they never try to resolve it really and it is a tension between well is this an idea of actually dissolving the individual subject are you trying to somehow escape from the illusion of individual selfhood which would be an idea which is consistent with sort of buddhist and vedic philosophy and also an idea which would be consistent with the sort of radical marxism of contemporaries like herbert marcuse or something or are you trying to liberate your individual self from a set of social constraints which are acting upon it externally? And those are two different ideas, really. And I think part of the problem is ultimately Leary, I think, is always he's just he's a radical liberal, basically. Like he, it's the second one that he wants. He wants to free himself from social constraints. And the idea of actually deconstructing himself, like freeing himself from himself, is not really part of his agenda. But he's sort of unique in that what most people do when they go through this process, like his colleague Richard uh, Albert, who becomes eventually renames himself Ram Das and becomes a meditation teacher. Also, Ralph Metzinger, his other main uh, colleague at the time. What they all do, well, they all do the thing that which which historically, like most people have done. I mean, to be, I guess, like you and me did, you know, when we've had experiences with psychedelics. Yeah, you do it for a bit; it's interesting, and then you go off and train in yoga or meditation or something, because that's a, a way to sort of deepen those insights and deepen those experiences. But but Leary never does this, and Leary himself is committed to the idea that you know these psychedelics are going to be not they're not just a key that opens the door and when you go through the door you find yourself in a yoga class that he doesn't want that he wants psychedelics to be the thing the discovery the thing which is going to revolutionize culture which is going to revolutionize society and of course he himself and this is the criticism which is often attributed to him and which he himself would later make this criticism of himself during in the mid to late mid 60s he will be the high priest of this new religion. And the extent to this political, I think you phrased it really well. Like It's a really good way of phrasing it. Was it political? Well, in a way, it was political in that he's saying, basically, the entirety of Western culture and Western consumer culture is vapid bullshit. And we're going to sort of tear it down by getting everybody just to drop out, trip out, stop participating in some sense. And then it becomes his great slogan, turn on, tune in, drop out. But on the other hand, it's also anti-political because it's very much the case that at least Leary and the people around him are, are the closest to him are absolutely convinced that those protesters from like students for a democratic society, those protesters like out on the streets, like th- who think they're going to stop the Vietnam War with like mass collective action, are just wasting their time. Man. You know, they had, they don't get it yet. They're still part of the problem. That really, what you what you need to do is sort of elevate your consciousness with psychedelics and persuade other people to do the same, and just sort of, and just indeed, just sort of drop out. We should listen to some music, and and one way to some way to 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 do that is to just, I guess, um, just note the kind of music that was often listened to uh, as people were beginning to kind of experiment with LSD and work out how this experience might kind of be complemented by music. So Leary was kind of into organising, participating 
in collective parties, basically. There was the idea that, um, you know, I guess a lot of the early culture and practices around acid were about doing it individually, or it would be an individual with, with say, a guide. But certainly at uh, Millbrook, uh, this house upstate in New York City, which became a centre for kind of Leary and kind of, the, I think, the, as far as I know, sort of the reprodu- the manufacturing and reproduction of acid. And they're just a kind of magnet for kind of all sorts of people who are interested in the culture, a number of them kind of celebrities. Um, it was at, at Millbrook and, but of course, other places as well, where there'd just be these kind of acid parties, basically. And certainly uh, a key kind of input into those parties was the was Ravi Shankar, this kind of classical musician, uh, virtuoso sitar player uh, from India who became one of the key figures in this kind of uh, exchange between East and West that was both, you know, musical, but also seemed to kind of promise a kind of a new way of understanding and experiencing the world. So what Ravi Shankar track are we going to play? Well, let's be clear, it's not just Ravi Shankar. It's Ravi Shankar and Ali Akbar Khan. And Ali Akbar Khan is, is very much the sort of uh, equal of, of Ravi Shankar, playing the steroid. Okay, we can play, just play a bit of the, of the track, Raga Palace Kafi. This album is called The Master Musicians of India. And it's really interesting because this was recorded in 1959. So it's a duet between Ravi Shankar playing the sitar and Ali Akbar Khan playing the sarod. It was released in 1964 and it was released with liner notes by the jazz critic Robert Polongo. And in those liner notes, uh, Robert Polongo does not make any re- explicit reference to psychedelics or tripping, but he uses the phrase set and setting. And set and setting was jargon, which originally came from Leary's particular uh, sort of school of of psychotherapy, psychology that he'd been developing before getting into psychedelics called transactional psychology. But it had been widely popularised by the fact that Leary and his colleagues, especially in their book, The Psychedelic Experience, but also in some earlier, uh, less widely circulated publications, had used this phraseology to explain to people that the quality of their psychedelic experience would be very much dependent upon what they called set, which basically just means your mood, your state of mind at the start of it, and setting, like the context. Like, were you in a nice room? Are you in a nice field? Are you listening to nice music? Uh, So the use by Palongo of the phrase set and setting is a very is there's no doubt in my mind it's an explicit reference to the idea you might be listening to this album tripping and I, that is the first direct reference to psychedelic culture on on a, on an album in, or in a, a line of notes or lyrics that i know of what's interesting is by 1964 this was already pretty well established because even like before long before leary was at millbrook even before leary was taking psychedelics in the 50s various kind of early pioneers, people who'd had access to LSD, you know, who'd come to it via contact with the psychiatric profession, were already developing this idea. There were already a handful of people developing this idea that what you want to do with this chemical 
is you and maybe a couple of friends sit in a nice quiet room and listen to lovely music for hours that's how you'll guarantee a kind of perfect experience and what's really interesting is that you know according to uh, the history that i've read you know there were already some fairly distinctive features of the kind of music that would work for this that were being kind of recognized like by the end of the 50s so for example from the kind of western orchestral canon it was Bach. It was Johann Sebastian Bach that people would get really into. And, the, and they would find things like Beethoven or sort of Wagner or Berlioz, like really kind of horrible, you know, because it's too linear, it's too intense. So it was music that had a certain degree of complexity and a certain sort of cyclical character to it, but it didn't have a really strong sort of linear sort of narrative drive that people would like. And so, and obviously, sort of in, this sort of Indian... Um, North Indian classical music, it, it, there's a sort of narrative when you listen to a track. It builds to a great sort of crescendo, but it has this real sense of sort of flowing complexity. It's almost like, like the sonic equivalent of listening to a, the water flowing in a river. And it also has this drone effect, of course, and it has this, and, and it uses microtones and it kind of plays around with sort of complex percussion, but it's it's not, it doesn't use sort of harmonics. So it's always played technically in the same key, but it's sort of using lots of complex melodic improvisation. And those are all musical features that would end up feeding into modal jazz and then sort of rock improvisation, rock instrumentation, um, sort of instrumental rock, you know, when people started doing long guitar solos and things. So it's really sort of, it, it's really, um, it's really sort of ends up being quite influential, this sort of sound. But it is sort of extraordinary to think that people, the reason why, why I mean, it wasn't Leary and his colleagues at Millbrook who, who got the idea. It was already fairly well established but by the time this came out that this was a sort of appropriate music for that. Obviously, it also had all these sort of associations of sort of mysticism. And one thing to say is like Ravi Shankar, who became a kind of iconic figure of the counterculture and the psychedelic rock scene, largely because of his uh, sort of patronage by George Harrison of the Beatles. He really didn't like that people would take drugs to listen to his music, including acid. But the reason he didn't like it, it wasn't because of some like puritanical critique of drugs. It was because the point of this music is you're supposed to get into a sort of like, you know, trance state by listening to it anyway. So the idea that you would even have to like do acid to like sit and listen to this music and get into a sort of meditative, or meditative, I shouldn't say trance state, it's not quite right, meditative and ecstatic state was sort of disappointing to him. And I think it is really, um, that's sort of interesting. And there's, a, there's an interesting relationship there with, with lots of other kinds of music that we we're interested in. That it was music that whose function was supposed to be to create a sort of state of stimulated, elevated, but relaxed sort of, you know, feelings in the listener. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, and back to the show. There's so much to discuss here and, and you know, so much fascinating history to kind of try and, and get through and we can only really scratch the surface, I guess. But, uh, I mean, another key reference point from around this period... 1965 maybe 1966 that the the grateful dead start to become these key figures uh within acid culture the band itself kind of seems to take its shape and its identity by organizing kind of you know musical jams uh in which there is dancing ecstatic dancing for a long period of time um and so somehow in in this kind of 
configuration acid becomes something which is you're going to move your body to more and you're going to like enter into an even more direct uh, relationship with music i mean i suppose one thing we haven't kind of maybe said but it will be familiar to many is that as your sense of self kind of weakens it's partly because of acid's connecting capacity i mean this this kind of fairly recent research was done on kind of doing a brain scan of someone someone under the influence of, of of acid and it kind of and the thing that was different was that parts of the brain that don't normally communicate with each other start to communicate with each other and this helps us understand this notion this 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 kind of general experience of connectivity that one has on acid uh, and this gets experienced you know this connectivity can feel very powerful in nature but it can be also feel very powerful with people around you and of course with music you kind of feel like the distinction between you and the music can kind of be lost a a little bit you kind of enter into the music maybe more powerfully and profoundly than i don't want to say than any other drug but uh, maybe i can say than any other drug that i've experienced and it seems to be the grateful dead who kind of become the kind of the group that kind of are you know most advanced in exploring this and in particular they do so uh, with this person who becomes you know a key figure within acid culture um, and also a key figure in in sort of uh, developing sound as and, and indeed ways of conceiving of sound that will go on to influence David Mancuso at the loft Owsley Stanley is this how you see the Grateful Dead yeah so if we carry on Leary's story for a minute in the, in the mid into the mid-60s. I mean, Leary and his colleagues get sacked from Harvard. You know, once they start giving people acid, not just psilocybin, and they start really just losing all interest in scientific, in ordinary protocols. And they also start, frankly, exhibiting behaviours, which, you know, personally, as an academic, I think probably should get you sacked, which is just just making no attempt to avoid becoming a sort of spiritual guru to your students and just not being responsible about the power relationship between students and teachers. I mean, actually, nominally, he gets sat for not turning up to give lectures. <laughs> so, um, like, so, and so he gets he gets sat, and they and he moves to to this mansion in upstate New York, uh, which is owned by a millionaire called Billy Hitchcock, who's an heir to the the Mellon fortune of the you know um, the Carnegie Mellon Foundation. Uh, and and the, and that, that their their family has connections to the CIA, which is partly why people think that the whole that some 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 hardcore like tanky communists still think that the entire counterculture was a CIA plot to stop the revolution from happening because the Hitchcocks had connections to the CIA. The point is, anybody that rich in America in the nineteen sixties had family connections to the CIA, so it doesn't really prove anything. Um, so you know, the CIA was just the armed wing of the, of, of the you know the liberal section of the American ruling class. So anyway, they were you know, and so they move into this mansion in Millbrook, and for a few years, because LSD is is legal until sixty six in America, so for a few years, just legally, they're making their money by putting on indeed sort of sort of small group trip sessions for mostly kind of affluent customers actually and the particular and it's there that they really do they really perfect this formula which um has been already as i said was sort of developing in the 50s of like well how do you do it well how do you do this drug <coughs> you create very simple <coughs> simple surroundings you burn some incense you have some you know some fruit and bread and cheese if you get hungry you probably don't eat much you sort of meditate you listen to stuff like ravi shankar 
I mean, I think that particular, that mode of tripping will eventually also come to inspire like whole genres of music, sort of new age and sort of ambient music in the 70s and later. But it's very sort of low key. It's very sort of controlled. And there's another group of people who also are sort of taking upon themselves the role of the sort of, of proselytizing for LSD and psychedelic psychedelia in the wider culture. And that is a notorious group of sort of artists, poets, sort of misfits who gather around the American novelist Ken Kesey, who is the subject who who become the subject of Tom Wolfe's famous kind of 1967 or 68 book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And what they do is something very different. They don't sit around in a mansion inviting a few rich people over to to trip quietly and, and have a quiet time. What they do is they drive around in a massive bus, which they've painted with all different colours, which is driven by Neil Cassidy, who is actually the character on who is the individual on whom the, the central character of Jack Kerouac's 1950s novel On the Road was based. And they sort of drive around, you know, sort of trying to find fellow freaks and trying to sort of turn people on and kind of getting people to come on their bus with them where they use all kind of weird sound effects to, you know, accentuate the effects of LSD. They have all this weird audio equipment. They they do things like set up kind of delay loops so that when they're driving around in a bus and tripping, when they talk to each other, they all hear echoes of the, you know, sound going around the bus and, and stuff. And then... They gradually, in I can't remember where, they're based somewhere in Northern California, like in the late 60s, and they start to gather around them, these sort of networks of, you know, of, of other sort of heads. And eventually the, they team up with uh, this guy, Owsley Stanley, uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley, who is a, a set, an incredible kind of autodidact figure, who is both a self-taught sort of sound engineer and LSD chemist. And Owsley sort of is sort of the instigating figure in persuading and kind of influencing a local band, a band who initially called the Warlocks, who were just playing sort of rhythm and blues of some kind, to become the sort of house band for the the parties, the events, what would come to be called the happenings, uh, organised by Ken Kesey's group, who called themselves the Merry Pranksters. And that band eventually will change its name to the Grateful Dead. And yeah, and so the Grateful Dead, as you said, they involve this style of music, which is appropriate to a load of people out of their heads on acid, kind of dancing, you know, often outside, like sometimes in an, in an auditorium. And yeah, the Grateful Dead involve this style of music, which I always say is, is essentially a sort of white jazz. I mean, it uses, it doesn't use the Great American Songbook as its template. It uses their own self-written sort of country rock songs as the templates. But the live music they play is, is essentially sort of modal jazz with more kind of rock rhythms and sort of rock instrumentation. And, it, and indeed, as you said, it's music for people to dance to. And this idea of a sort of collective dance, sort of joyous dance, sort of crazy dance, you know, is, is really sort of central to what they're doing. And Owsley is this really sort of central figure. And he's, and he's, a, he's a key figure in, in the idea of audio engineering as an art form and in the development of the idea of audio engineering as an art form. His work developing their sound system and their use of kind of effects and things sometimes while playing as well is really um, influential in the long term on kind of <coughs> rock audio. Owsley has also becomes famous he teaches himself to make LSD and he's one of the people who becomes famous for 
trying to make LSD, which is chemically purer than than what you would have got from a commercial supplier, like before it was illegal, because they have this idea that LSD is a sort of holy sacrament, which they think was brought into the world by the cosmos or God in order to balance the, the bad karma of the invention and first use of the nuclear weapons, like at the end of World War Two. So, yeah, really, really important figure. He was at the forefront of understanding how to mass manufacture and distribute acid, uh, and yet never thought of this production cycle as having kind of anything really to do with with him. He never thought that the kind of money that he could make uh, from acid was really his money. And this becomes very important, that it's about, it's there's this idea that it's about it's, it offers an opportunity to um, change the world, to kind of intercept successfully with the kind of the escalation of the Cold War. And it becomes very important to Owsley that the, the acid remains very cheap and that the cheapness is also kind of important because it enables it to uh, people to afford it, but it also enables people to be able to distribute it and to kind of, you know, earn some money from this livelihood effectively. So you have this thing with Owsley that he becomes kind of, uh, he sort of becomes rich through manufacturing and distributing high quality, but very low priced acid. And I think the Grateful Dead end up kind of writing a tribute song to him that specifically references the way that he generated this kind of, you know, suppose, I think maybe it was just a newspaper article, actually, that was kind of that reported on this, that he'd become kind of the first acid millionaire or something. But this this led to a a record called Alice D. Millionaire by the Grateful Dead, which was a reference to um, Owsley Stanley becoming this kind of millionaire. Alice D. Millionaire being LSD Millionaire, I guess. <laughs> Rather obviously. Let's hear it. Since you left your old scene behind you, go ahead and let the green light find you. Love is, love is, love is the message. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, and back to the show. So we've got this scenario where we've got the Timothy Leary has been has been is, is popularizing uh, and arguably you know in his inimical way politicizing acid, uh, having been also kicked out of Harvard. We've got the, the Grateful Dead, Owsley Stanley, and a, a wider culture also emerging around the consumption of acid, of course, and the the different ways that its um, its properties can be accentuated. Partly what's going on here is also a story of, of acid on the West Coast and acid on the East Coast that I think is we need to, to think about. And at the same time, we've got this situation where at the very moment where acid is made illegal during 1966, it's also reaching its point of, of takeoff in terms of its kind of mass popularity. 
So I don't know if, if this is what gives it its countercultural edge is this idea that it's a kind of it's it's political. Um, it's be it's kind of got mass appeal and it's uh, therefore through the US government made illegal. Yeah, well, it's I mean, it's, it's criminalized in the UK pretty early, sometime in the early 60s, I think. And then and then in the States, it's not just they don't get them. They just don't get around to getting the legislation through Congress till 66. And yeah, and indeed, 66 is really the moment you can point to and say, well, it enters into mass consciousness in some way. And most famously, in, in Britain, the sort of you've, in 66, 67, you've got the emergence of the idea of swinging London as, the, as one, of the, one of the cultural epicenters of the emerging sort of psychedelic movement and something you might start to recognise as a counterculture. I mean, in 1967 in London, you've got the Dialectics of Liberation Conference, which has sort of psychedelic proselytizers, people from the British anti-psychiatry movement, speaking alongside people like Ginsburg and, and people from the Black Power movement and having some serious debates. But even in 66, the Beatles album Revolver, the 1966 album, famously features this track, Tomorrow Never Knows, which is John Lennon kind of drawing out a lyric, which is a slight adaptation of some of the lines from The Psychedelic Experience, which is the book published by Leary, Alpert and Metzinger in the early 60s, which is a, which is a manual for how to have a trip, a manual based on their reading of some sort of Tibetan Buddhist text. So it's an incredible piece of work. And it's also, it's using all these kind of sonic effects, these backwards tape recording and things to produce this deliberately sort of disorienting effect. And it's one of the first examples, the first of many examples in sort of popular music of a music which is, it's sort of, it's, a, it's music which is about acid and it's sort of psychedelically inspired. It's not like it's music you would want to listen to on acid because it would just be sort of a head fuck. And I think... There's also, there's an interesting distinction, I think, which runs through sort of the relationship between psychedelic, between psychedelic culture and music. There's a history of music, which isn't really, it's sort of reporting for the listener on psychedelic experience and somehow trying to recreate it in how disorienting the music is. And it's also music, which, you know, in my, you know, in my experience personally, it's like it's music people will, will listen to where they've got a very weak doses of, of psychedelics and they're teenagers and they're trying to sort of accentuate the effect. So you want to listen to weird music. Whereas on the other hand, there's a tradition of wanting to listen to music, which is nice, basically, which is soothing, which is going, which you know, the assumption is you're going to have a strong dose of psychedelics and it's going to help you sort of calm down a bit. To some extent, stuff like The Grateful Dead is sort of trying to do both at the same time. Anyway, Tomorrow Never Knows is just the fact that this track even exists becomes is a sort of indicator of the way in which, you know, psychedelia in different ways is entering into sort of mass consciousness. I think you can always exaggerate like how popular it really was. I mean, I think in like if you would do a proper like sociological or political economic study of, of how many people were actually had access to LSD and were using it, I mean, it's still the case in the late sixties. It's pretty unusual, and especially in Britain, you know, it's pretty much a sort of elite thing, really. Like unless you're very lucky. I mean, it's rich people, or it's people who've got some connection to the music industry, or maybe some bits of like the psychiatric profession or something. It's not widely distributed. It's over the course of the seventies and, and the eighties, actually, that more and more people will kind of have some casual exposure to it. So I think it's important not to sort of have this idea that well, like in London in 1967, like everyone's dropping acid, like it's very much a sort of 
it's sort of an upper middle class thing, really. Turn up your mind, relax and float downstream. So this is the most pop, as far as I don't know, I think the most popular band in the world, probably, uh, certainly in the Western world, are singing, you know, starting to sing quite explicit lyrics about LSD, uh, even if there isn't a mass movement of people who are taking it, or even if we're not quite sure of the numbers. There's clearly something here which is, you know, threatening to enter into a, a different dimension in terms of, you know, its take up. And just to rewind, you know, to something we've been discussing in in earlier episodes there's a confluence a convergence of activist you know oriented movements that are you know gathering momentum in the second half of the 1960s and acid becomes this thing that again you know seems to have this ability to connect connect everything together and to accentuate it maybe yeah i mean maybe this is part becomes part of its role i don't know it, at least those who experience it understand that it's sort of is able to draw these lines of connection, establish these lines of connection that weren't previously appreciated. Seems to be so fundamental to its its uh, experience, uh, its its impact, as the experience it offers. So it's just interesting that the you know it's in sixty six and sixty seven that acid is um, is is breaking through at this is the very point where counterculture is coming into existence effectively, and it's the and it's the it obviously becomes the most important kind of drug of that counterculture as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's lots of ways of understanding the, the relationship to relationship between acid and counterculture, and, and different people understand it differently. Mm. I mean, my, I think our particular take on it, which was also very definitely David's take on it, and frankly, the take on it of everybody I've ever known who was actually involved, rather than commenting on it from a distance, was that actually the concept of counterculture, when it comes into usage in '68 is trying to sort of overcome a perceived split between the radicals and the hippies. So on the one hand, you have the hippies, who are the sort of descendants of the followers of Leary and Ken Kesey, and they and they think like acid on its own should be enough to save the world, and they don't want to engage with social and political processes in any significant sense. And on the other hand, you have the radicals, who you've just described, but the uh, the atten- but then there's various people and the people who become really sort of central within the countercultural are people I think who, who actually have the idea that well, you you want to overcome that split that they, they, there's acid has a potentially radicalizing effect but then you want to actualize that radical potential on the domain of politics as well as on the domain in the domain of culture and everyday life and 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 you want a politics which is both radical and revolutionary and anti-capitalist, but is also a politics of love and and it, as you say, a politics of universal connection. Mm. And that's that's the sort of ideal. It's not to say that many people ever really realise that ideal. It's not to say that I mean maybe it was just an ideal that couldn't organisationally or culturally really be realised. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's an idea which is also I think the idea of counterculture is a shift. It's a break with sort of leery-eye hippie culture, precisely because, at its best, people like Ginsburg, people like the sort of British spiritual thinker Alan Watts, who was very influential at the time, these people, they do realise that, as we said at the start of the show, LSD is a a sort of technology. Mm. 
that that can be used for radical purposes. It can have a radical function, but it doesn't necessarily have a radical function. And so the point of constructing a counterculture is to construct a culture within which that radical potential will be actualized. And, and it won't just become a sort of distraction from social change. And it won't become just a thing that lures you know, potential revolutionaries to just spend all their time sitting on the beach staring at the sky when they should be out doing revolution i guess there's this just a there's a you know in, in addition there's also this sense where whatever one's position and motive for taking lsd in the first place the very fact of its banning does does politicize the activity yeah, um, yeah. so even those who might be of a or might be from a more liberal position on this uh, experiencing it as a way of exploring the self and, and there is there is clearly value in that uh, might have found themselves politicized when the when the state decides to ban it and this was a general um, emerging kind of experience I think in in the latter part of the 1960s as well uh, maybe earlier maybe it dates back to just the entire post-war era of the state being overbearing interfering controlling, hierarchical it's something that frustrates rather than enables so i just think indeed there's there's a way that everyone kind of gets perhaps caught up in the politics whether they like it or not there's one big party going on all the time sometimes we get to tune into it the rest of the time there's love is the message so we're mainly i mean we're very interested in in the kind of east coast part of this history on this show i think that's probably our major preoccupation but there's no getting away from the fact that on the west coast the bay area san francisco the haight ashbury which is the name of the 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 neighborhood in san francisco where all of this happened at the highest level of intensity for a couple of years it does become a sort of historically important crucible for experiments in lifestyle, experiments in communal living, experiments in what it means to have a culture in which sort of tripping is part of everybody's everyday life and forms a part of people's cultural vernacular. And, well, without doubt, the most famous band to emerge from that scene is The Grateful Dead. But if you'd have asked people in 67, 68, like, who's the house band of the Haight-Ashbury counterculture? They might have said The Grateful Dead, but they would be almost as likely to have said Country Joe and the Fish. Country Joe McDonald is a, a singer-songwriter, very famous for singing at Woodstock, anti-Vietnam songs, anti-draft draft songs. But his band, Country Joe and the Fish, they also play these really, you know, um, quite sort of beautiful, sometimes instrumentals, um, which are di- which are self-consciously influenced by, you know, listening to Indian music, for example. And on their 1967 album, I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die, there's a, a little mini track which you don't even see listed on like the Discogs listing, for example, but I'm sure we can find, which is just, which is a, a, just a jokey, a commercial for LSD. And there's also a couple of tra- tracks, you know, there's a track called, instrumental track called Eastern Jam, 
there's a track called Colours for Susan, which is just a, a very romantic kind of sort of ambient rock love song. And they really do sort of exemplify the, the two sides of that countercultural ideal. You know, they produce this music that's really nice to listen to and it's sort of Indian-influenced instrumental rock and it's quite romantic in its expressions of love like for an individual and for people more generally. And, they, and there's also this kind of political content, this very self-conscious rejection of the prohibition of LSD, but also the whole military-industrial complex. And uh, I was taken to a Country Joe and the Fish concert when I was a baby in Goldenberg <laughs> Park. Apparently. Oh, that explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's going over. That's all part of what's going on over on the West Coast. But over on the East Coast, what's happening around the same time is David Mancuso, one of our universal reference points, is being taken occasionally up to Millbrook to hang around in Millbrook uh, with his high school friend, Nick Sand. And Nick Sand is a guy who will go on to become famous because he's this person who sort of follows on from Owsley, who in becoming a sort of prominent LSD chemist and someone who also had a sort of lifelong commitment to the idea of producing high purity LSD as a sort of religious uh, vocation. Mm. Yeah, so it's extraordinary that David went to to school with Nick Sand and I wish we were able to kind of potentially find out more about that. But we do know that um, it it was during this period of the just probably... Around well, exactly around this moment of the of the mid nineteen sixties, you know, uh, probably shortly after David has, had moved to New York uh, in in nineteen sixty two, um, that he's he came into contact with with acid culture. Um, uh, he told me that indeed he he went to the Fillmore East, of, you know, usually for concerts, but that he went there also to hear Timothy uh, Leary give his lectures. Uh, on the acid experience it, he was backed by the joshua light show it's kind of these kind of oil light effects that kind of informed you know so much of kind of the visual culture of kind of early rave uh, but also this kind of iconic kind of dreamy fluid you know morphing kind of light effects that seem to complement the acid experience and david i mean the one thing david was you know told me again and again is that when he started taking acid it was still legal so we we know it was definitely pre nineteen sixty six. He said that the, the, his first, well, I think it was his first trip, or if not his first trip, an early trip, coincided with a snowstorm, uh, and he told me that each flake was like a universe. Uh, this sense of wonder, uh, the simplicity and the complexity that acid allows you to kind of access, and David just you know absolutely absolutely loved this. I mean, there is this quality of acid that enables you to start to pay attention and appreciate the things that in daily life you just beca- you just ignore. Because if we were to go about our lives being open and, and fully receptive and appreciative of everything around us, we, kind of, we wouldn't be able to function because of the mixture of wonder and I guess also kind of fear or awe that would kind of f- would fill us. But David was, was in, you know, completely 
captivated uh, by this experience. And um, I think he, I don't know, I mean, I just wish I'd been able to ask him more about this, but he certainly went on, um, you know, he would go kind of go on walks through, you know, woods and forests and just kind of, he was, he was out there in nature, uh, I think. Um, I'm guessing when it, you know, it was still legal and he was enjoying acid in a natural environment, kind of going snorkeling and just kind of being completely blown away by this, this experience. Um, but we do know that he sort of came, you know, he did come back to, uh, obviously New York City. He did go up, uh, to, to Millbrook. Um, he did see acid being kind of consumed and experienced in a collective and a party. Um, situation but that party situation wasn't entirely geared up to all night dancing Uh, there wasn't this focus that David placed on I guess you might say set and setting so that what could really be experienced uh, was this this kind of communal dance oriented in uh, experience that would be where everything would be accentuated to kind of uh, draw out the the intensity well, I would see. I would. I would put that differently. Okay. I don't think David. Dave. When David didn't construct a party, in a way which is designed to accentuate, accentuate sort of intensity, in the way that the West Coast people did, David designed a party. I think. It, I think David was really influenced by the Millbrook idea mm. in his idea of party design, because the whole point about the the loft is it's not supposed to be overwhelming. No, but the, yeah, but that's that's also. I mean, when I say accentuate the intensity or the potential, it was it was about indeed. You didn't want to be overwhelmed. You wanted to be made comfortable. Uh, exactly. You wouldn't. Exactly. You know, the music. You you wouldn't blast the music to increase the intensity, but you would play. You know, David, as as we know, and we'll come back to this in later episodes, would generally soon started to play his system at hundred dB. Um, because that would enable, you know, it's the, it would enable a, a kind of um, experience of long duration. There's something really interesting going on here. Because what is it that Owsley becomes famous for as an audio engineer? He becomes famous for what is called the wall of sound. You know, it's, I mean, that's a phrase that had been used in other contexts previously as well. But the idea is to, is to allow the Grateful Dead to play in a way which makes the music sound very clear, but it's very, very loud. And the whole kind of deal with uh, the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead and their events was was this idea of sort of sensory overload and like de- deliberate distortion. And I mean, I've never been to a Dead show, but um, you know, I've, I've always found it interesting. One of the first things I ever read um, that talked about the Grateful Dead uh, and the experience of going to a Grateful Dead concert concert was a book by someone called Robin. I think it's Robin Silver. A book called traces of the spirit it was a book it was written by a religious studies scholar but they're talking about music and kind of music culture as yeah robin sylvan traces of the spirit the religious dimensions of popular music and so one of the things that sylvan talks about in that book and one of the things which is pretty consistent with everything i've always heard about dead shows and people who've gone to them is that well there's a certain darkness in the in the grateful dead's music you know, it's very blues heavy. It's all blues derived. And it's not just sort of joyful in the way that like loft music is, or even the music of like, you know, Coltrane or someone is actually. 
Um, I mean, Coltrane can be really difficult, but I would say there's a, there's a certain you know it's very difficult. It can it, unless you're very very immersed in a particular kind of sonic aesthetic. But but I think there is something. There's always something. There's something a bit dark, and there was always something a bit dark about Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. There's this idea that the psychedelic experience. I mean, they used to call their most famous events. They called them the acid tests, and there was this idea that you had to sort of test your spiritual strength seeing like how much you could take of this heavy stimulation and that was often seen by critics and commentators as a sort of deliberate rejection of the politeness of the Millbrook way. Kesey and his friends saw Leary and, and his friends as being much too polite you know much too nice in the way they wanted to trip and encourage other people to trip and I think David is ultimately he's not a, like a Keseyist he is a, like a Learyist like he is somebody who who recognises that when you're cons- constructing an environment for people to trip in, it has to be non-threatening, comfortable, you know, relaxing, calm. But David's sort of genius is to say, well, that doesn't mean you can't dance. You know, you you have all of those qualities, but you also have the quality of a, you know, a party that can you know have a few hundred people at it and and be dancing. And I think that's always the that's the objective, which for me I think is always informing the design of the loft as an experience. It's 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 trying to capture the same vibe like you usually can only get by sitting in your living room listening to sort of ambient music, but it's doing it with dance music with a big crowd, which is which is very difficult to do. You know, I would always warn people. I always warn people about taking psychedelics, like to go out dancing or something, because honestly, I think three quarters of people who ever try to do that have a bad time because it's you know it's a heavy experience to deal with you know being in a crowd in a place that's not your own place with music being played very loud you know it's heavy and disorienting and david's the genius of the loft was he figured out a way to make it not that like for the most of the vast majority of people who experienced it tune in turn on get down love is the message yeah, well, it was what we know. One of the things we know is that this, the kind of what became known as the loft, didn't kind of emerge immediately, or it wasn't it wasn't an overnight kind of process. In, I think David's the first acid parties he uh, held on it in his six four seven Broadway would be with usually four or five people, uh, and he would make tapes. Uh, three people would do the whole dose, uh, one person would do half a dose, and one person would do no dose. And it was only after a, a couple of years that David held his first sort of party that was kind of resembled a dance party and there was kind of more movement. But he still didn't have a full sound system at this point. He can, he can only have two clip shawms, for example. And it wasn't that long afterwards that he also then started to kind of try these this kind of after-hours kind of uh, style party. So there was a whole series of kind of, exper- you know, tests of different kind of party scenarios uh, before David decided that he he wanted the intimacy, he wanted to develop sound, he wanted to kind of encourage all night dancing. So we know that the kind of um, this first party, reconfigured party that David wanted to try out was uh, held on Valentine's Day 1970. We know that Salvador Dali's um, painting of Melting Clocks uh, was was used on the invite, and that in, inside that invite, David uh, coined this phrase, love saves the day, uh, which was uh, a reference to 
course LSD, uh, also a reference to Valentine's Day and the suggestion that if we're going to celebrate Valentine's Day, we should be focusing on uh, this idea of universal love, which connected, of course, back to counterculture and acid. But the thing that kind of really seems also, you know, be, as, as you're saying, that seemed to kind of underpin this, this whole approach was this insistence that it, on comfort and on intimacy. Um, so in a sense, the, I don't really know if we can go this far, but it was like the whole of the kind of, you know, the loft was conceived around the, the notion of, 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 of these needs. Uh, of of how could you properly experience acid in a in a collective environment, uh, and there's, so there's this tension. You know, the the larger number of people can make people feel insecure, but it's also with that larger number of people that you can re- you can develop these this new for, this new kind of ecstatic high. I mean, I'm sure there were you know there've been ecstatic highs you know with people dancing to hallucinogenics going back millennia. But this, I don't know if, uh, the, but perhaps there was nothing quite equivalent to it, this going on in New York City prior to this point. Um, at least, you know, this kind of an all-night dance party experienced in someone's home, uh, organised around this kind of, you know, very gentle, um, you know, warm analogue um, sound system. So the other thing to kind of, I guess, to throw in is that, you know, David had read um, the psychedelic experience um, and he had been particularly kind of um, interested in this this kind of idea of the, the three bardos, these three, three stages to the acid trip. And I think it was kind of a instinctive, spontaneous kind of thing um, that David sort of came to realise that, you know, if you were kind of, you know, um, taking acid and you're putting on music or dancing to music at the same time, that you would want different kind. You might want different kinds of music uh, at different points in this trip. And in a sense, what we understand, you know, now <laughs> it's an idea that's kind of gone through many mo- no, uh, mutations. But what we sort of understand to be the DJ set, this idea. And David, of course, didn't think of himself as a DJ, but we'll come back to discuss that in more detail uh, on another occasion. What what um, you know what came to be understood to be the DJ said this journey, you know, this the very idea that there would be a journey kind of coincides with a kind of acid um, way of seeing the world. Love is the message. So I think David obviously started to listen out for, search for, um, tune into records that would work within this kind of overarching, developing narrative arc of a party that would initially start out as a six-hour party, but within years was, you know, moved on to being kind of an eight-hour party, a 10-hour party, a 12-hour party, uh, sometimes even longer. And a lot of these records also had to, you know, asked you to do something which was very different than listening to sort of a Ravi Shankar record. I mean, David did take to playing that kind of music at the, uh, in the what he called the prelude of the parties, where people were kind of entering and, you know, as a, a, a tuning to the different space. But the main thing that David, you know, wanted to do was to effectively play music that people were going to move their bodies to. Uh, so there'll be a certain level of dynamism. And just as was the nature of kind of most band setups at this point, there were kind of generally a fair number of instruments were kind of going into the mix. Uh, the music didn't sound particularly kind of minimalist. So one track that anyway, that kind of seems to evoke this period of the first loft 
on Broadway, of acid becoming central to the experience of the party and enabling the party to become what you know everyone I spoke to sort of seemed to think was definitely you know, far and away the most intense and explorative and transformative party going on in New York City. One of the records that David would kind of play in this situation was Charles Earlands leaving this planet. Um, Charles Earlands, this kind of uh, you know artist who like a number of artists from the period, Gil Scott Heron being one of the most notorious, sort of combined jazz and soul and blues and funk. And just the leaving this planet has the just the title itself kind of suggests what was going on in, in, in this situation. It wasn't just about exploring something new. It was about exploring something transformative. Uh, and the combination of, um, you know, of, of this kind of music, uh, dancing to it in a collective situation uh, with a nicely tuned sound system was the key to experiencing something transformational. I think it's the it's the fact that this record it combines complexity, like most of it and stuff. It collect, it com- combines jazz complexity with rhythmic danceability and melodic accessibility, is really interesting. And it there's an interesting link for me in my mind. There's a real link with like the Indian music, and it's something which will carry on for a few decades in terms of when people think about psychedelic music, they think about music which is trying to combine those elements, but then. That all really changes, like from the late eighties onwards. I mean, in in the time, you know, today the dominant form of music people think of as psychedelic is probably like psychedelic trance, which does, which has a very different aesthetic. And I think one thing we'll want to look at further down the line is how that how that sort of break occurs. Like how how does it how does it happen that at one time in history people think if you want to listen to music. Well, you're chipping, you want to listen to music that has this sort of dynamic complexity, whether you're sitting on a cushion listening to Ali Akbar Khan or whether you're dancing to Charles Earland. And then later on, the idea becomes, well, actually, you want to listen to music that's rhythmically just incredibly simple and monotonous and just has these kind of synthetic arpeggios over it. Right? Again, again, it'd be interesting to think about how that eventually changes. So I think one thing that, you know, on the theme of love, which is also one of our ongoing themes, we know that uh, also the, the experience, one of the experiences of LSD is to enable you to kind of engage in a sense of, to develop a sense of clarity, to really understand what's, what's important and what isn't important. All the things that, you know, we can tend to value in everyday life, like, you know, material possessions, our career, you know, what people think of us, uh, they can sort of s- somehow dissolve on, on acid. And, and it's within this that the, you know, the, the central kind of importance of love can become, you know, very clear and, and uh, undeniable. And so I just kind of, part of me just wonders if the, if the, this, um, this experience of, I don't know if we can call it universal love, but let's just call it love for now, how this might link to David's upbringing. And the, and the fact that from a few days old, he uh, uh, grew up in this children's ho- home, was looked after by sister Alicia, who was, you know, committed to another idea of universal love, you know, which was related to Christianity. So I just think in concluding this episode, maybe we can 
you know, what are there connections between the Christian idea of universal love, for example, and the kind of sense of universal love one can experience on acid? Yeah, well, that is really interesting. So it's not just acid. I mean, in, in The Doors of Perception, I think it is, in 54, and he's talking about mescaline, mm. Huxley says that the, 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 experience, the key experience he has with this drug is the experience of love as the love as the supreme or the universe can't remember the exact word now it's love as the supreme cosmic fact mm. and yeah that is an idea which runs through certain kinds of christianity but it's an also an, an idea which runs through certain interpretations of like hinduism and vedic philosophy and in buddhism there's this really powerful idea of metta of like loving kindness as, as the the emotional the emotion one has to cultivate to the rest of the everything that exists in the world actually and oneself so and um i'm sure david did partly have a sort of a sort of radical approach to this partly because he'd had such a non-standard experience of, of family and, yeah he'd had the experience of both like ordinary the ordinary nuclear family is not really existing and being totally dysfunctional but also you know, a social institution being able, you know, through sort of political will and spiritual commitment, being able to sort of create something else and sort of create love and a situation of love. And so the, I think there was this sort of deep, you know, unconscious, largely sort of interconnection between David's experience and his desire to create you know, the loft as a sort of quasi-familial or supra-familial experience. And, you know, for example, the things that are going on in in like radical psychiatry i mentioned the dialectics of liberation conference and people like rd lang and david cooper also people like marcuse and then the kind of early you know women's liberation thinkers they're all to some extent making critiques of the way in which you know the post-war cult of the nuclear family sort of constrains our idea of love and it and it becomes attached to and inserted into a form of consumer consumerist capitalism that you know only promotes very privatized very individualist very individualized very materialistic forms of satisfaction and forms of self-love and yeah i think there definitely so there definitely is a connection and that is a key reason why people from the early 50s onwards, actually, even from when Hoffman first takes acid by accident, actually, people from very different spiritual, political traditions, they all have this sense that there's something going on with this drug. There's a potential in this chemical and the experience that it tends to induce in people to sort of challenge what are evidently some of the most regressive and regrettable features of kind of modern culture as it exists at that time. I mean, it's important to note, I mean, that can go in a conservative direction. There's been interesting historical research recently about the Hoffman's connections to some very conservative thinkers. And in the 50s, like some of the people who got really into acid early on were, were, were Catholics who were into, you know, I think fairly conservative forms of Catholic theology. And, and you know, it definitely is possible to just have that experience and think, well, we should all sort of obey God's will and, you know, and, um, you know, reject the modern culture in the name of some traditional form of authority. So I, I don't think there's anything inherent in like psychedelic drugs that makes you become a radical, although some contemporary psychological researchers are trying very hard to argue that acid does make you, acid and psilocybin do make you a liberal. But, but certainly the sense that there's, some, there's, a, there's a, a, an irreducible friction 
between that experience of cosmic connection and and not even cosmic but material and social interconnectedness that you talked about before that those drugs tend to facilitate and this sort of experience of universal love which so many people taking those chemicals very early on or commented on there's a friction between that experience and the sort of normative culture of, of advanced consumer cult capitalism advanced heterosexist heteronormative patriarchal consumer capitalism there's a friction between those things which means it was always very likely that that psychedelic experience would come to be seen as in some sense countercultural. Mm-hmm.